Hey there, podcast listeners. We are so glad that you're tuning in. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor here at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. And the sermon you're about to listen to is based on uh, the narrative lectionary reading from this past Sunday, which comes from Mark chapter 4, in which Jesus shares a number of parables with the crowd. And um, I'll focus specifically on um, uh, the parable of the sower, um, but uh, may make a couple of allusions to a couple of the other parables that he shares as well. We really are glad you're listening, um, especially as we move into this new year. We're mindful that um, part of what it means to be church is to um, reach and uh, participate in church life in different ways for different folks. And so we know that a lot of our folks work on Sunday mornings, and so um, it's hard to get to worship sometimes when you work um, work on Sundays. And so part of our intention is to try to broaden our understanding of what it means to be church together. And so the church just isn't the folks who are in the room on Sunday mornings, but um, everyone who somehow participates in this community of faith. And we consider you part of that. And so I really am glad you're listening. If you want to stay up to date uh, on what we've got going on, you can head over to our website, williamsburgbaptist.com. And if you scroll to the towards the bottom, there's a place where you can sign up for our weekly e-news. You can also, I'll drop links in our um, in the podcast description. Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and that's a great way to kind of stay up to date on what's going on in the life of this church. I should also mention that the podcast, the, our sermon recording didn't pick up the very beginning of our sermon, and so I re-recorded that, and you'll hear that in this um this is studio voice that I'm recording with now. And then the um, sermon audio from the worship itself will pick up. And so sorry about that hiccup. But I really do hope that this sermon is a blessing to you this week. Thanks so much again for listening. God bless. Did any of you have one of those teachers who changed your life? You, you probably know what I'm talking about. I hope so. I could probably point to a number of teachers, but Mrs. Vandelock was my 11th grade AP English teacher, and she keeps coming to mind this past week. She had such a remarkable impact on my life's trajectory. She was of short and slight build, but she possessed the most remarkable and powerful spark of vitality in her. And one of the things that stood out to me the most when I first started in her class was that she made us write so much. She was aggressive about it, it seemed. And she didn't hand out easy A's, which made us work all the harder. And if I had to pinpoint one moment in time when I feel like I really learned how to write, her class was it. She made us write persuasive essays, challenged us to articulate our opinions and perspectives, and asked us to see the world in new ways. One of the things I appreciated most about Mrs. Vandelock's class is that she assigned a book called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers, and that was one of those books that was the right book at the right time in my life. It literally changed the way I see the world, and uh, I loved it so much that I asked her if I could keep my class copy, and I ended up underlining half the book and jotting notes in the margins, and it's still in my, on my bookshelf at home something like 25 years later. If you remember the movie Dead Poets Society, she was my Mr. Keating. 
oh captain, my captain. At least a couple of times now in my adult life, I have tried to track her down and failed. But to this day, I wish I could reach out and say, you may not know this, but you changed my life. I am where I am in part because of you. Mrs. Vandelock loved her craft and loved her students and gave so freely and generously to us. She was a consummate teacher who did not hold back. If you need a lunch conversation with a partner or a friend, that would be a great conversation starter. Talk about that teacher in your life. But Jesus was that sort of remarkable teacher as well, and it strikes me that we only have a fraction of his words that he spoke in his life that are actually recorded in the Gospels. But what we do have is a treasure trove, and what we get in today's scripture reading that Jeff and Diane read is a sampling of the parables that he would have shared with crowds who came to, came to learn from him. And parables are short stories that serve as teaching tools, and Jesus will often use parables to compare this movement that he's inaugurating to the kingdom of God. He compares them to ordinary, everyday things that people would resonate with, like, far- like farming and, uh, and uh, household items. But here's the thing that's so remarkable and also so challenging about them. Parables never just have one easy-to-digest theological meaning or answer. Parables are tricky. You think you have them figured out, and then you look at the story from a different angle, and you find it reveals something entirely new to you. If Jesus wanted, I suspect that he could have just as easily stood up and given a three-point sermon. But he didn't. And if he did, his listeners probably would have forgotten them by the time they got home and turned on the football game. But he gave us stories instead because stories stick with us and invite us to wonder where we find ourselves in them. We never fully exhaust the meaning of parables. If you want a nice, clear answer from the Bible, don't read the parables. You're not going to get it. But you're going to get a few parables today whether you like it or not. Jesus is standing alongside the Sea of Galilee, and so many folks have come out from the countryside to listen to his preaching that he has to climb into a boat and push off a short way so that he can address them without getting overwhelmed. And he says many things to them in parables, but Mark just gives us a sampling, the first of which is the famous parable of the sower. You may remember it. A farmer goes out to plant seed, and he, scattered, he scatters it all about so that some falls on a road, and other falls on rocky ground, and others land among thorny plants, none of which are conducive to these seeds growing and maturing and putting down roots and bearing fruit. Only some seeds land on good soil, but when they do, they bear so much fruit. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Is the meaning obvious, clear, clear as mud? The way Mark tells it, not everyone gets it, because the disciples will have to ask Jesus to explain the meaning of the parable later. But to the farmers and fishermen and other agricultural workers who made up most of Jesus' audience, here's the thing that would have stood out to them. This farmer in this story is not doing what normal farmers do. Now, I know this because I grew up on a farm myself, and some of my fondest early childhood memories are helping my dad and my grandfather as they were planting or tending or harvesting crops in the field. 
And so I remember the deliberateness with which they fertilized the fields and tilled the soil and loaded seeds into the planter uh, that would then place them carefully in the ground. All of this was intentional and purposeful so that the seeds were given the best chance to grow and yield an abundant harvest. They never once just threw seeds every which way, right? You just don't do that as a farmer. And so the behavior of this farmer in the parable would have been shocking to Jesus' rural Galilean audience, most of whom were probably poor folk who were dependent on getting a good return on their work. They wouldn't just waste seed like this farmer. They were going to plant it carefully because at the end of the day, they needed to put food on the table for their families. But three-fourths of the seed goes to waste in this story. It's not fruitful. Why would the farmer do that, and how does that shape our understanding of the story? Now, Mark does give an explanation of sorts of the parable in his gospel, but we purposefully skipped that in the scripture reading because the crowds would not have had the access to that explanation either. And I wondered what it might feel like for us to hear the parable as the earliest listeners would have. Here's how Mark explains it, though. The seed is the good news, the gospel, but when some people hear it, malignant forces prevent it from taking root in their lives. Others do hear it and receive it joyfully, but when they don't develop any depth, when they don't grow any roots, uh, then the joy dies out quickly. Others receive this seed, this good news, but they find that worldly desires and worries about wealth and status and stuff choke out their ability to bear any fruit. It's only the good news that is planted in good soil that is able to bear an abundance of fruit. And I like this explanation well enough from Mark, and I would guess most sermons I've heard on this parable lean heavily on this explanation. But like good soil, but be like the good soil so that God's word can take root in your life and flourish. It's a good message, right? And it's helpful because it helps us make sense of why some people seem receptive to the gospel and the movement of the kingdom of God in the world and why others aren't receptive to it. And it might take some of the sting out of situations when we invite friends to church and they turn us down, for example. Oh, they're just bad soil, right? It's not the nicest thing to say to you about your friends. But my hunch is that in telling this parable, Jesus wanted this story to breathe so that it might take on different and multiple meanings. And so I wonder what happens if, instead of seeing ourselves as soil in the story, we see ourselves as seeds. Some of us are scattered and land in places where we can flourish, and others, for reasons beyond our control, land in places and circumstances where we struggle to grow. Maybe some of us are born into lives of good soil, where others are born into parched deserts where we have little chance of growing deep roots. And then the invitation becomes, when we read the parable in this way, for us to build an equitable world full of soils where everyone can flourish. I don't know. I wonder what happens if we read this parable with the realization that sometimes in life we are good soil, ourselves when we have done the hard work of fertilizing and plowing and nurturing our lives and our bodies and our minds so that we can receive wisdom and insight. 
And other times we are bad soil and we do get choked up by the worries of life and the allure of wealth and status. What if the question isn't, am I good soil or not? But when have I been good soil and when I have... When have I been good soil, and when have I been bad soil? And how might I tend my life that I might be more open and receptive to God's movement in the world? And I wonder what happens if we put ourselves in the shoes or the sandals of the farmer himself. What if we are the ones who are tasked with recklessly scattering seeds and love and grace into the world, not sure where they will actually take root, but still called to share the divine message of love far and wide anyway? When we turn the parable around and around and view it from different angles, we begin to see the depth and richness that it offers for our lives of faith. It doesn't yield just one answer, but maybe 30, or 60, or even 100. A couple of thoughts that are lingering with me this week. One one is this. What can each of us do in our lives to receive God's love and grace and help it grow and flourish? How can we prepare and till the soil of our lives, so to speak? Are there specific practices that are important to us and as us as individuals in a community? I'll give you one example. Before I had kids, one of the things I used to do when I would show up to church, I would try to carve out a few minutes to sit quietly in the pews and pray and ask God to prepare my heart for worship and prepare the hearts of others so that we all might receive something vital in what was about to happen. Some of us in this room have a regular rhythm of Bible study that's very meaningful. Others have a daily prayer time or some other sort of regular spiritual practice. And we don't want to be prescriptive about it because we're not cookie-cutter people. But I do think all of us can find ways to try to nurture our awareness of God's presence in our lives. Your challenge today might be to wonder, what is one step you can take in this regard? How might you prepare the soil of your heart? But my second thought that keeps lingering with me is this. What if we see ourselves in the generous recklessness of the farmer who throws seeds every which way, whether or not it's going to sprout and bear fruit? In the farmer, we see a reminder of God's reckless grace and an awareness that even when we don't recognize God's presence in our lives, and even when we don't till the soil of our lives, God is still recklessly flinging grace in our direction. I love that image, and it sounds an awful lot like good news to me. And so what if we see the gospel as the endless resource that it is, and in turn do our part to share love and acceptance with others as generously as we can? Just because the seeds are precious doesn't mean that we should reserve them only for the the soil where they'll take root. Instead, we can accept that we're going to plant things that never bear any fruit, and that's okay, because it turns out that love is not unlimited supply in this world, and grace is not a finite resource. Just as importantly, it turns out you can't exhaust hope and joy and forgiveness and kindness and hospitality and acceptance either. Today's parable is not an invitation to try to figure out what kind of soil your neighbor is and whether or not they're worthy or whether or not you're worthy. 
Instead, it's an invitation to show divine generosity to everyone you encounter in this life. It's an invitation to wonder what fruit we might bear with the good news that we ourselves have received. And it's a reminder that we don't always know what seeds are going to bear fruit. And so we have to have faith that when we plant and water, it's ultimately not up to us about whether or not they grow. I don't have any idea if Mrs. Vandelock has had any idea whether she made such a profound impact on my life. I hope I have the chance to tell her one day. But my sense is that she taught her students with reckless love, trusting that our growth would happen one way or another. For our part, as people of faith, we are simply called to show up as best as we can in the world and trust that God will make things grow. And my hunch is that we'll all continue to be surprised at how much fruit we'll bear. Thanks be to God. Amen.